Welcome to the Sacred Birth Circle. On today's episode, we discuss some very difficult topics, including maternal morbidity and birth inequities, in hopes of encouraging you all to continue to push for your better care and to make sure that you're aware of everything that you need to know going into your pregnancies. Please make sure to follow us on social media and share this episode. This is Anna Vick. I'm here with one of my very favorite people here in the maternity care um, health advocacy space. I feel like I've been to all of her recent events and really trying to support the efforts that she's been doing all along. And, you know, I'm kind of new to this game as far as what I do. I'm advocate for stillbirth prevention, but um, maternity care in itself is just at a crisis state as we see it's falling apart in many ways. And so I want to let Shani introduce herself because I know she can do a better job of explaining all she does and then we'll get into a little conversation here today about how we can empower families because that's our goal you know both of us as well you know we share that heart for change unfortunately we've had serious trauma and things happen to us and our families that shouldn't have but you know we're using our voice and we're fighting back so let's hear from Shawnee introduce yourself please well, thank you um, first and foremost just want to acknowledge you um, Anna and your team at Push for Empower Pregnancy for always creating platforms for these important conversations to take place. Um, I just, we've known each other for a short period of time, but I feel this strong affinity and alliance between us. And then of course, what you just shared, the experience of loss in this particular way, which is very sacred and unique um, and how we're bonded as mothers who've experienced um, the transitions of our children, no matter what the age or stage, um, the impact is, um, felt intensely and deserves um, conversation and acknowledgement. So just saluting you once again for the work that you and your team are doing. So as you shared, my name is Shani um, Renee. I started using Trellis, which is my great-great-grandmother's um, first name because she was a midwife and I want to honor that energy. So Shani Renee Trellis Benton Gibson, and I am the uh, CEO of Spirit of a Woman Leadership Development Institute. And I'm also the co-founder of the ARIA Foundation, which started in memory of my daughter, Shimani Makipa Gibson, my eldest child that transitioned. Um, and when I say transition, she passed away in 2019 due to a birth-related pulmonary embolism that was preventable. And so my work was already in the realm of reproductive justice and advocacy and healing. And so to have her pass in that way was a shock to the system. And then I always tell people I quickly regrouped and realized that my, my daughter was a Black woman, young Black woman in this system, in this society. So to be shocked about that um, was actually um, not looking at the reality of what happens to us in the realm of um, reproductive health and birthing. So you know now I've amplified my work and this conversation is part of that. So I'm grateful to you for creating the space for us to chop it up today about these experiences and what folks can do to educate themselves and then also support others. So first and foremost, of course, we're very sorry for your loss. And like you mentioned, you know, you were in this space before. So how does that make any sense? Like, I know you said it before, like education wouldn't have really helped. You knew it all. You knew what was going on with your daughter and you guys were, you know, advocating and everything that we stand for, trying to empower families and so it's so hard when we're looking at a system that seems to be up against families, um, especially black families, you know, there's um, a racial issue going on. 
not being heard, maybe, you know, their symptoms being discounted a little bit more. What would you say to that? Like how, I know it's hard because we as moms, we look back all the time, like, what if, what could I have done differently? You know, and you were right there with her, you know, when this went down. And I know everyone here will hopefully watch the Aftershock documentary, which, you know, you guys allowed a very intimate look into that experience um, to help other families and to make sure this does not continue because unfortunately we can talk about it all day, but if someone sees this film, they will definitely be much more impacted by this reality. And I hope, you know, the change will happen. So um, I don't want you to have to go into the actual loss, but just as far as how can we empower families, you know, we're, we're teaching, we're informing, but what more can they do? Sure. Um, this is something that is easier said than done because we've been indoctrinated and conditioned as part of this culture, the society to buy into whatever the authority um, and doctors are considered authorities, um, like what they say. We've also been conditioned to believe that doctors look and sound a particular way. And so in this country, you know, even though the paradigm has shifted majorly, when you say doctor, people automatically start using pronouns him. And then they also get a visual of folks that don't look like me, you know, um, a lot of times you think of white people, white men that are doc doctors and authorities in this society. So the first thing that I recommend is that we start to shift the paradigm about who wields the power when it comes to our care. Um, I have agency and um, bodily autonomy. And so I get to choose whether you touch me, whether we continue to do work with you as my partner on my healing journey, uh, whether I listen to you, whether I challenge you. And a lot of times people do not. And I say we should shop for um, healthcare providers like we date people that we're interested in, um, or like we look for clothes that we're going to wear. It's like there are certain types of brands and um, you know, just types of people that we want to engage in in other aspects of our lives. And doctors and medical professionals also should be held to the same standard, quality, um, respect, reliability, um, capacity, because that's an important piece, because I feel like one of the reasons why my daughter is not here is that, you know, she was working with someone that didn't have the capacity to carry all of the, the cases that they carry. And I don't talk about that as much. Um, but as we move closer to releasing the, the film on a larger scale, on a global scale, I'll be talking more about how um, my daughter had a Black midwife um, and a Black doula. But in these systems, a Black midwife or a midwife of color is almost unheard of. It's like a unicorn. Um, so when you do find one, they're saturated with people requesting to work with them. And we only have the capacity for X amount of people. So you know, you might end up working with someone who's exhausted and um, who's overwrought with the amount of cases and requests for support. And that will impact the quality of care that one receives when it's like that. So uh, following recommendations of folks and like the popular doctor, the popular midwife, the popular doula, um, there's a consideration around capacity that we all need to pay attention to because I do wanna be with the best, but sometimes the best, they're just overwhelmed. Um, you know, and another thing that I will share is that we are responsible and accountable to do our research. So when someone shares jargon, you know, that's a medical professional or in this birthing realm, we should be doing our research. Or if we're not asking them, what does that mean? Because jargon, you know, if you don't understand what is being said, you might be saying yes to some things that will 
do harm for you in the long to you in the long run. So we should know and have an understanding of what's happening with us. If they're giving us an epidural, like what is that? What does it mean? What's the implications? What are the complications? Or um, if we're getting sonograms, whatever it is, we should know the language and at least be able to ask the questions. And if they're resistant to asking, answering the questions, then that's something to question about that individual. You should be there to educate and inform as well as care for. And part of care is being transparent and, and providing information that your patients or your partners in healing are requesting. So those are the things that come to mind right off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult because we know like statistics are bad right now. So for a woman who is wanting to be pregnant, we don't want them to go into this very beautiful experience with so much fear that yes. you know, they don't even know what to do. And um, that's not the intent, you know, these conversations. So I appreciate, you know, the tips about actually dating the physician, like getting to know who you're going to go with, because I never thought of it that way. I would just go with the person I normally got my pap smear with every year, you know, and didn't really think like, well, is this person really listening to me and able to like understand, like if I'm having this anxiety, not just to write it off because they'll do that to anyone really. And right. like you mentioned, it's a systemic problem where they have so much to do in a day, so many other clients. So if you're not loud enough about what you're feeling, they might just chalk it up to, this is normal for pregnancy. Women are always uncomfortable, you know? Right. Right. We are, and it's hard to tell the difference. Sure. And, you know, definitely in your daughter's case, you said, you know, before that you understood like what she was feeling. She, you thought you knew what it was, right? Exactly. And yet her doctors had told her they checked for that, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where I find it really hard because we do get reassurance from some testing that gets done here and there. And at the end of the day, like we're not doctors. So what do we really know? You know, like with my loss, I, you know, had a few situations where I thought this and that yeah. feels wrong. And they told me, oh, well, no, it's just a little bit low iron. So go home, continue pregnancy. Uh, and I didn't know to push for more than that. Yeah. So yeah. that's why these conversations are so important because, you know, hopefully the reality will not go this way for anyone else. But if you start to feel, you know, I'm uncomfortable to the point that this is not normal for me, you cannot back down from your provider, right? And, you know, hopefully it is a provider that is listening to you. And Absolutely. I know like different environments are different. So not every person can just shop around for all the doctors they want. Absolutely, yeah, so, yeah. You know, you know we're locked in sometimes, you know, based on the type of insurance that you have. And just, you know, we don't have, a lot of us don't have time. You work in raising children, you know, just trying to make ends meet and manage family. You're like, you may not have the ability to, shot from one person to the another, going to appointments, like having to take off work, you know, so I get that that is not practical for everyone. Um, you know, the other op opportunity, once again, is to speak to folks that you trust about who they've worked with, recognizing that it may not work for you, but at least you have someone that you um, find that is a reliable source of information to direct you to someone and then you can determine whether it's a good fit once you get there. But I do, you know, I'm glad you brought this up. Want to, um, my caveat is to do what aligns with your circumstances because some of us are more privileged um, to have flexibility around shopping around and others do not. So thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. And in your experience with other families, I'm sure you've connected with other families who've lost mothers. Are you feeling like a common thread of what happened? Because we're talking about preventable deaths, a lot of them. 
is it mostly the axis or is it mostly them not being listened to about symptoms or variety? Like, I'm just curious as you've gotten any wisdom, you know, from unfortunate, you know, losses that we can pass on. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that's talked about in the documentary, um, there's a, a doctor, Dr. Neil Shaw, that's in the documentary and he speaks about um, not my daughter's situation, but the situation with the other uh, mother that passed, Amber Isaac. And he spoke about the breach in communication, specifically not being told, right? Not being informed of what's going on for Bruce, the father who was trying to figure out like what was happening with his partner. And then also not being told um, about the implications for the, um, the labs that uh, she was taking that had clear red flags about what was going on with her and they were just missed. And they can bring, blame it on COVID, but this happens often. you know. So one of the common themes is um, not paying attention to the expressed symptoms by the birthing person. Um, and if listening to them, like if they're not expressing it in the way that you feel, in, when I say you, I mean the, you know, the provider feels that makes sense um, or that questions choices they make, then it may be dismissed. It's like, oh, we took care of that. That's already, it's like, so what? You know, you might have addressed it. Like with my daughter, um, they put on the, on the compression tights or, or the apparatus that supports the women in, um, after having a C-section with not clotting. And it wasn't enough. Um, after she left the hospital, clearly there was something going on with the clotting in her body they checked in the hospital was like oh we took care of that but no thinking about the implications for black and brown folks when we're looking in the statistics that we're three to four times more likely to die and here in new york eight times more likely and at the time of her birth my daughter's it was 12 times more likely that there's a need to listen more closely and take action that you don't do with everybody else because we're in more danger so just that thematic thing of not respecting, not listening, um, having bias, projecting thoughts about how things are supposed to go onto an individual that has their own unique um, situation and own unique body and set of circumstances and not paying attention to that and doing what I call habituation, which is like, this is what I normally do. This is the structure that I follow. These are the things that I share. And so when you operate from habit, when it comes to um, medical conditions, especially with the system as it is right now, then you create the space for more likelihood of near-death experiences or actual death, like in the case of my daughter and also Amber Isaac, who also died. Amber's story is just as Tragic. painful to hear, you know, because I have friends who survived the similar situation that she was in that, you know, that was preventable. It mm -hmm. just needed to be addressed. And right them not knowing until I think she hired a midwife or something at some point mm -hmm. that read that for her. Yeah. You know, we don't know, like I said, we're not the doctors. So we do rely and we trust on our care providers to inform us and to do the best for us. And this is um, an immense tragedy, you know, with the children left behind and everything. And yes. the fathers mm -hmm. now parenting without their partners and I hate that it just feels like this continues to happen and it's a crisis like we're saying we're actually the worst of all developed nations when it comes to maternal morbidity and stillbirth um, not improving. Yes. So that's why we're all out here like 
every day talking, being loud about it and hoping we can get through, you know, it's policymakers and, you know, the people that have power to actually implement change in the system, because unfortunately it is broken and it's for profit the way we run medical care here in this country. So I see a lot of people kind of pushing back and not wanting to be birthing in the system anymore, which is kind of the extreme for me as a stillbirth mom, because I understand interventions are needed in those situations. Also, I mean, of course, if you're passing away, you know, you need some medical intervention. So we don't want everyone to just say, well, you know, let's not get medical care and just see what happens at home either. So I know it's, it's been used a lot, especially in black families now, because you just can't trust that you're going to get care at the hospital. And like, you feel maybe a little safer even at home. So. Yeah. Uh-huh. We're not in the position I know for myself with the Aria foundation and, you know, we partner with Save Rose foundation and also around the documentary, what we're promoting is choice that on the continuum, you have the opportunity to go to a hospital, but you want to make sure that you get quality care at the hospital and that they are operating above board and that the basic standard of care um, is not sufficient enough for black and brown birthing people because that hasn't been enough to save us, right? And then, you know, if you want to birth at the birthing center, you have the opportunity to do that and that there are enough resources and coverage so that if something happens, you'll be able to, you know, get adequate care and then be transported if you need to be transported um, from that space to a hospital that will provide adequate adequate care for the emergency situation that you're in. Um, And if you want to birth at home, you know, that you're able to do that. You have all the coverage. You don't have to pay. Like my daughter, I think it was like three to four thousand dollars that she had to pay out of pocket just to birth at home. It didn't work out but she was still responsible and accountable for a portion of that money. And it's just a shame, you know, that that option, like in other countries, wasn't at the top of the list. It's not even 10th on the list. It's like unheard of people like you're birthing at home as if you're saying that you're doing something bizarre and that's out of control and that there's something wrong with you. When in many countries, that's the most natural thing that you can do. So options are key, but in this country, we don't have a lot of them. And so we're shifting and and turning the Titanic in a sense so that the system can recognize that this has value, that it's possible to do, we used to do it all the time, and that we need to restore order and add more choices that are affordable choices for black and brown birthing people and anybody who chooses to birth in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so like having those safety nets though is the problem I feel like because if you're not with an OB already and you don't already have that plan B of I can go there if anything happens. I imagine that makes it more of a crisis mode for you. You sure. know, you have to be yeah. transferred. So it would be nice if everyone could play together, you know, like yeah. this is the mother's wish and she's going to do it this way. And then at this point, if anything's needed, we'll transfer. And, you know, she has her care team picked out, but it seems like there's just no working together right now. Um, I don't know if you found that people are getting supported in that, but. I've seen people have struggle, you know, and, um, and home birth can go wrong because unfortunately we're all low risk pregnancies until the situation arises and something happens with the baby or yourself. So I always advocate for having that plan, you know, for the transfer in place, hopefully not needed. And of course, like majority of cases won't be right. You know, our bodies are very able to birth in most situations, but not all of us, unfortunately. That's true. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I 
feel like we have, a, I know, not just feel, I think and know that we have a long way to go. You know, when I think about my third pregnancy, um, which was, I had a midwife, I would go to her clinic, but it was at the hospital, but I had a midwife in the hospital who was with me every step of the way, allowed me to birth the way that I wanted to with my son. And he's going to be 18 years old in October. So 18 years ago, I had that experience. And once again, it was unusual. Um, and I got a recommendation from someone um, who had an experience with, and I'll say her name, um, name was uh, Catherine Tanksley. She's no longer in the, uh, here in um, New York, but she was phenomenal. And, you know, my birthing experience was, uh, was beautiful. It was not in my home and it was not at a birthing clinic, but my, both my daughters were there. My, one of my daughters, my daughter who passed, um, her boyfriend was present, um, two young women that I was mentoring. So I had young people in the space with my former partner birthing my son and watching this experience, which the norm would be that family would be there to witness and catch the baby energetically, if not figuratively, I mean, literally. And um, it was just an awesome thing, but we have to restore that. And it's going to take more and more push from push for empowered pregnancy and also Aria and all of the entities. And you mentioned playing together well. And um, one of the things that COVID provided and I so love is that I'm in relationship, even with you and your team, I'm in relationship with folks that I never would have um, been in relationship with because uh, these experiences of advocacy and activism are no longer siloed, at least on the teams that I'm on. I'm working with multiple organizations and people who are committed to the same things and we share resources and ideas and we grow together. We do events together. So it's shifting on our part. And so we now we have to pull in the so-called experts um, so that they'll listen and start to shift gears in reference to how they provide um, care to birthing folks across the nation. And also I feel like we'll have a global impact for those who also are struggling around keeping black and brown mamas and birthing people alive in their countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important they listen to the families and the stories because they are trained in school, but that might be a while ago for them. Right. And then they're doing their work as they normally do routinely and they're missing things and the things are not improving. And so I think hopefully they see this as an, a learning opportunity and not, you know, us wanting to tell them how to do their jobs or anything because I don't want someone to tell me how to parent my kids, you know, and that sort of thing. So I understand, like, we're not trying to come in and, you know, tell them this is how you operate or anything, you know, but we are the families, we are the ones birthing the children and we want a certain experience as well. And, you know, making sure that it's actually a healthy living baby and the mother goes home safely as well as, you know, obviously more important to us than anyone else, you know, they experience the loss, I'm sure it affects them, but trauma lives with us forever. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say something about us telling them what to do. I actually have a different take on it. Like what I do in my home, um, there's no, there's sanctions, there's policies around how we raise our kids. Push can't just do whatever you want to do. There are ways that children and families are protected, but I'm like, you take an oath as a medical provider. And if you work in an institution where my tax paying, my tax dollars are paying for you to do what is required, um, to care for me at the highest level that you can care for me and at, at a, on a basic level, the standard of care that you have been trained and developed to provide. And also they're required to continue to study and to continue to look for innovations. So if you're not doing that, you, you must be held accountable 
accountable. And I think part of the problem, you know, and I'm curious about what you've experienced is that when someone does die under the watch of an OBGYN, a, a midwife, anybody who's um, a surgeon that's, you know, pro, uh, performing a surgery C-section or anything associated with that, I find that they are often not held accountable or not scrutinized or looked at closely. They're fiercely protected in that round. Yeah, you're right, actually. <laughs> See, that was the people pleaser in me. Like, I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do, but um, no, you're right. It's absolutely true. And accountability is so important. And obviously it's not there, uh, especially for my loss, which was a stillbirth. Babies don't have any rights if they don't breathe at birth. So we couldn't do anything. Our hands were tied after, you know, we couldn't even get a proper cause. Like I had to go search for it and, you know, six years later, finally learn it and having the resource to do that. So it's terrible because yeah, they can just continue practice as normal. And I think that was really the most painful thing for me as a mom to think my son died and there was nothing that came of it. There was no change. It was, there's no impact. They're going to continue to give the same level of care. And then other mothers are going to go home without their baby after me. Cause they didn't learn. They didn't come to me and try to figure it out with me. You know, they just accepted it. They said, well, sometimes healthy babies die, you know, <laughs> like what? you know, I can't, I can't believe it. Like I went through your care this entire time. Everyone was telling me he was perfect. I was perfect. So it's really mind blowing that you can lose a baby and then a mother, of course, as well. And there is no accountability. I don't know how many people are successful in getting any type of justice, but, you know, I think for all of us, change is what really would help. You know, we can't bring our family member back, but we can at least feel like they have a legacy and they're improving something, you know, in the world that they're not being forgotten and just like, oops, you know, that happened kind of feeling. Um, you know, just acknowledging, and if you've said this before, I missed it, that it took six years to get an answer. And just thinking about what you shared, that there are some families that never get to the bottom of it, or because we've been conditioned to just accept what these authorities say. And I'm saying this with air quotes, because they're really not. There has to be a level of accountability, no matter what your position is in this society. You know, it just my heart breaks. You know, I'm a clinician, I'm a healer. And so part of the healing process is when you get answers. It does it may not resolve everything, but it's like this person passed as a result of natural causes, or they passed as a result of uh, cardiomyopathy or their diabetes complications. And when you're like, oh, just healthy babies, just they die, um, you know, you're left with that hole. You know, and then to wait six years and to have to expend your own resources to get to the bottom and keep pushing and pushing exacerbates your experience of the grief and the loss and the trauma. And so I just acknowledge that. I'm sorry that that happened to you. And as someone who has worked in systems, you know, I'm a clinician, you know, worked in child welfare and worked in the mental health um, systems and addiction systems. You know, we have to be accountable. And my last job in the world, I worked for the state where we held entities accountable for how they provided services to the patients. And when there were breaches, we would go in and investigate and sometimes shut the institutions down. And so I know it from both as a recipient of services, as a provider of services, and as someone who has had oversight and that responsibility of making sure that there's accountability, I it, it, it 
pains me to know that you were left to push and do that on your own, you and your family inside of your grief. That is so, so unfair. Yeah, it's pretty horrible. And I do want to honor a special baby today, Autumn, who would have been 11 and her mother is actually promoting the Shine for Autumn Act, which is currently on its way to the Senate, hopefully soon. Uh, that is an act that we need in place so that we can start to gather data and actually have the causes of death for a lot of these babies recorded. And that way we can actually improve, you know, we need information and research to be able to make change in the system. Unfortunately, people don't just say, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to start doing more of this without, you know, the information. So today is a big day for that family. And, you know, they've been pushing for now 11 years for something to be done about stillbirth prevention. And that's equally not as preventable as maternal death. I will say maternal death, you know, we know most of them are preventable, which is why it's so horrific that we have such a high number here. And then, you know, stillbirths, we know at least 25% are preventable and maybe even more if we actually had a good standard of care, you know, like some other countries. And I think it's sad because it feels almost like people assume like, well, this is a maternal health issue, you know, and then they can just get pregnant again. Well, you can't get pregnant again if you pass away, but if you lost a baby, they treat it that way. So nothing really changes, you know, and then a lot of families, your, your trauma is so huge that you're not speaking out. You know, I don't know how many of the other mothers that have been lost have family members like you guys who are out there being very vocal about what happened, you know, probably because they don't have answers, probably because they don't know what to say, because that's where I was for the last, you know, six years, I had no information. So what am I going to go out here on the streets, you know, shouting about, I just felt like, well, I had bad luck. Is that what it was? You know, so I think part of the empowerment of families is having that information and having the causes. And so hopefully we get the Shine Act going. I don't know what bills, I know the Momnibus is out. Um, there's certain bills that will hopefully help with just maternity care in general and lowering uh, the racial inequities, which you know we wanted to talk about as well. Was there any other issues with that that you've seen lately? Yeah, I just wanted to bring up that for me, it's not complete if there is a loss like you've experienced and they don't do what is necessary to figure out what happened with that. And you mentioned the 25% stat. And I'm like, you know, just as you stated, like what difference that would make if they treated um, all of these losses as an opportunity to be curious and be engaged so that we could prevent it for the future because that's the whole purpose of autopsies and medical examiners is to examine what has occurred to make sure that there's not an anomaly or patterns that exists that can save lives for the future. If we didn't have those systems in place in that type of science, we'd probably be dying from a lot more things than we do right now. Certain things that took us out with ease before, we now have addressed them and we, you know, we no longer die due to those particular causes because that science is in place. And this experience, this dynamic deserves that level of scrutiny and exploration and curiosity as well. When I think about my daughter, because just speaking to what you shared about me and my family taking this action, I had privilege, you know, and I speak about that, you know, it's not white privilege, but I had the privilege of having the, um, experience um, as a clinician um, under my belt, having the experience of the organizations that I partner with. I 
have contracted with the Department of Health and had their ear because I was doing anti-racist work and um, work around birth equity with them before my daughter passed away. And so I had particular um, uh, support and covering from folks that had authority and power and including my own and was just known in the community. So when she passed, they were like, people were shocked, you know, and they were like, what can we do? And using the various platforms that I was on, I was able to um, make sure that Shimani's name was spoken and the issue was spoken about. And then also just having the wherewithal to ask at the hospital, maybe within 30 minutes after her death for um, an autopsy. I demanded that and um, they did it. And then within days, I discovered that it was a birth related pulmonary embolism. And they were also trying to put obesity there. And I was like, absolutely not because my daughter wasn't obese. She just had a baby. And then when they were working on her to save her life, they pumped her full of fluids. And so she was really bloated and stuff like that. So sorry about the background noise. You know, so I'm just like, y'all have to really be more accountable and responsible. And I was pushing back with the medical examiner. I'm like, no, we will not be saying that she's obese. But I also want to say that even if she were, she deserved a deserve quality of care, just like anyone who's using substances or on drugs has an addiction issue or mental health issues, part of the LGBTQIA community. Like we all deserve the same level of care or even higher because we're black and brown and it's more dangerous for us to do the nat most natural thing, which is to bring new life into the world. So that's my add on in reference to study and science and um, autopsies and all of the stats that can save lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we often get discouraged from autopsy in my community, which is very odd. I almost feel like they don't want to see that the baby was perfect because that means something in the care was wrong and they overlooked gotcha. something else, you know, like the cord and the placenta is usually most at fault and they're not looking at that in normal pregnancy. So, you know, and it will give the family a reason to really get riled up, right? So. I almost feel like they just don't want you to go there because I was really talked out of it in a way that I was like, well, you make it sound awful. So no, I'm not doing it, you know, but the answers are very important, I think, for long term healing, too. And actually, like I mentioned, I did get the reason. But the really interesting part was I had it sent to my OB, which he doesn't know me anymore, but it got to him. And then I was wondering for the longest time, like, did he read it? Did he care? Yes, did he, like right. acknowledge it? Did he take it in? So I actually requested a meeting with him and he acted like he didn't know me at all. Like he had no clue why I was having this meeting. And I was like, I just want to go over the results because you told me there was no cause. And now I found it for you. You know, right. now we know why this baby died. And I also to kind of absolve him because it was cord compression. So oh, okay. I wanted him to know like, okay, with the current care, you probably wouldn't have seen it, but we are pushing for more. We want more done with that. But I was like, he just acted like, okay, what else do you want from me? Okay. And then he even mentioned like, well, for your next pregnancy, we'll make sure to watch you a lot more carefully and you'll get this care and that. And I was like, is he out of his mind? Does he even remember this was six years ago? Like, I'm not going to have more babies. I've already had my last baby with someone else, you know, to <laughs> not trust him if he didn't even care to figure out sure. why my son died. Sure. So it was just shocking, you know, cause I was like, this sucks. You know, I really felt like I'm going to give him this information and he's going to take it back and say, well, how can we save babies from cord problems? Right. It was just literally like, okay, can I help you have another baby? You know? Yeah. I mean, um, it's a very common thing. Um, 
you know, I'm a performance artist and, you know, a writer. And one of the things that um, actually amplified my desire to be part of this conversation was that I engaged in many, many conversations with folks who had postpartum depression, fertility issues, like, and we generated or created me and my daughter, Jasmine, a, um, an original play around this. And one of the pieces that I wrote was called The Words. And it's all about the things that people say and their ignorance, sometimes out of meanness um, or just all, all different reasons why people say what they say. But one of them is like, oh, you know, you'll just have another baby, you know, like, what's the big deal? I'm like, you carried this baby to term. Like you had, you created a world around this baby and it's just not over because the baby came out. Like you can't, like I, we call our documentary Aftershock because there's the, the rolling, rumbling impacts that keep coming, you know, when the birthdays come through or you're, you know, when you people ask you how many children that you have, do you know how much I stumble on that question? You would probably, because I have three children. One happens to be deceased. And I'm like, I have to orient myself around people's ignorance regarding that, you know? So yeah, we have a long way to go. We definitely do. But as long as you and I and others like us stay the course, then things will shift. Um, maybe not overnight, but I, I'm committed until the day of my last breath um, that this will keep going and um, that we'll keep having conversations like this. I pray it'll shift in conversation, but we'll keep fighting, um, you know, to prevent this from happening and holding folks accountable. You know. Yeah, it's a really weird dichotomy because there's such... Um, like right now, this whole pro-life, pro-choice, we're all fighting over who has to decide what's going to go on with this woman's pregnancy. And so some people act like they really care that you have this baby. But when it comes to a loss, when you lose a baby from miscarriage or stillbirth, or even, you know, they have a genetic issue and you have to have a termination, there isn't that much sympathy. And, you know, you kind of get the oh, well, we're sorry for your loss, but it only lasts for, you know, a few months. And then they want you to get back to normal and have more children and act like that loss did not happen. Uh, so it's really, for me as a lost parent, I feel like so insulted really by this other conversation that's happening because it's like, we want mothers to birth and we want them to, you know, every pregnancy, they must keep it and they must have this baby because we value the life of this baby but if I lose my baby, no one gives a crap, you know, no one's there for me. No one's fighting with me. I'm at these marches like, hey, guys, come out with us and fight for third trimester losses. These are full term babies we could be saving. They're all healthy. You know, they just had something wrong at the end with the cord of the placenta mostly. So, you know, come join us, prevent these babies from dying. And it's like crickets, you know. I feel so bad because then I hear all this chaos about the other issue and you know, I know, I just feel like women are not respected, nothing about us, nothing, you know, we're just used to carry babies and you fail at it. Oh, well, you know, go try again. But that is apparently our purpose here <laughs> to some people. Um, yeah. I don't know how you've been feeling about all. Yeah. Well, um, before I go to the role Wade um, uh, overturning, I just want to just reiterate what I say all the time or when I remember it because it's so potent is that wombs create worlds and women have wombs or birthing people have wombs. 
And without them, and I'm sure they're trying to figure out ways to eliminate us. You know, it may sound like a conspiracy theory, but I just feel like there's always innovations that try to shortcut what nature already had down perfectly. You know, just when I think about um, the issues with food, it's like we got to cut quarters, we have corners, we have to produce really quickly, and the quality of the food has been diminished. And I really feel like we're not exempt from what a wound can do. If they can figure out how to to manifest babies outside of our womb spaces, they will do it. You know, so I say all of that to say that if we don't start taking care of women and birthing people who are the conduits for new life to come into the world along with whoever they partner with and co-create with, then we're going to move towards the end, end result, which is extinction. So we need to be respecting what the power of the womb is, the womb wizardry is super important. And until they come up with something different, which I hope they won't, we need to be paying attention and doing everything that we can to make sure that we're covered. Um, as it relates to Roe Wade, um, you know, deep sadness about like the outcome, also anger. Um, but I, 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 my mindset is to be a stand for something, not be fighting. Cause I'm like, that is exhausting. Like I'm a stand for a birth equity, reproductive justice. And I want to stand firmly in that when I'm swinging and ducking, it's just, it's exhausting and it throws me off balance. And when I'm rageful in my fight, it gets mixed results, but I'm passionate, compassionate, even for those who are ignorant enough to continue to perpetuate this insanity. So the Supreme Court um, justices that think they're doing us a solid, a favor, think they're doing something noble, they're going down in history as the buffoons that generated more death outcomes and near death experiences. So thinking about in the 60s and the 50s, you know, women dying, they have wards that were set up for um, near death and death experiences for women. Uh, what was it? The most common one, one's hemorrhaging and then also infection, which is in fact what's killing us now. Like one of the five top um, ways that women die giving birth is um, hemorrhaging and due to infection. And so we're returning to that. And so when I think about the, the platform that I'm on, that you're co-creating with me and I'll be co-creating with you, that um, it's going to be more dangerous as far as maternal morbidity and mortality because of what uh, roadway. We're going to hear about a lot of fatalities and young people and young people of color um, dying because they are just so terrified of having this baby, bringing it into the world. They're going to go to extremes to not do it. And I'm really, really afraid about that. But also my, I can't let my fear stop me. Like we have to stay the course once again and fight to reverse this or to make sure that they're covered. And I know we can come up with the innovations to, to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's really just sad because it comes down to judgments, people not wanting to understand each other and, you know, making blanket statements and, you know, fearing. And I don't know, it's almost like they want to make it so negative and like, this is a villain against them, you know, like the other, instead of realizing like there are reasons that people need this care and why can't we help? Why can't we, you know, actually as a society, have a system where they feel safe to have a baby even. Like right now, I would not wanna be going through a, a high-risk pregnancy myself, you know, having had already three C-sections, I don't know that I would have, you know, anything done about it. But if I did get pregnant, that would put me at risk. 
And with the current care, you know, they can't even say like, oh, you're guaranteed, you know, don't worry, you can have a baby safely and your baby will be fine, you know, so how can they force birth on people, you know, basically putting you up to slaughter in that sense. So for me, it's not humane. And it's, you know, I think it's like this masculine thing, you know, controlling women, which yeah. You know, um, what I was thinking about, and this may sound controversial, but it's really not intended to be this way, but, you know, folks will receive it how they receive it. That when I think about all that we're doing right now to make sure that those who have challenges around fertility and people have fought for this, you know, being able to uh, have surrogates and um, being able to um, engage in IVF and just other methods to manifest, um, you know, their offspring. And I'm like, Bravo for that. And I'm like, if we're going like having jobs cover and all this other stuff, I'm like, what is the difference between that on the continuum and being able to choose not to bring life into the world to, you know, I don't use the term abortion and I say release, like being able to choose to release. Like if you're fighting for the other end, like it's only fair that we bring it all like on the continuum and the, the, the cycle of birthing, giving, giving birth, not giving birth, like all of it is fair game. And it's just sad that, you know, they get to decide what's viable, what's necessary, what's legal and what's not. And at the same token, my child has no rights. So a baby who was stillborn, who was a full term baby that I had to birth and bury gets nothing. I have no, you know, no accountability, all that. So, yeah, for me, it's hypo- hypocritical beyond belief, you know, definitely like, you know, how do you decide what's in, what's out, what matters, what doesn't? You know, and they're not really even asking us, you know, like they're deciding in that ivory tower, like what is acceptable. And many of them uh, were born during times. It's just antiquated thought. A lot of, oh, and, you know, I love my elders and stuff like that. But then when I think about mainly white males with privilege making choices like this, it just sickens me to think um, that they're so out of touch with what young people need, with folks who are my age, I'm 53, like what we need and out of touch with women, you know, uh, it's it's atrocious. But I also know that we're gonna keep um, standing for what's right. And I love that, that we're not throwing in the towel and saying this is too much, we're out of of this this race for justice. Well, it's part of healthcare and ACOG and all the other big organizations that provide you know, licensing and everything to doctors, they are all for abortion because they know at some point in a pregnancy, it might be needed to protect the life of the woman. If the baby is not viable, you know, all the situations and we can't just say, nope, no one's going to get in this state. And then that creates the inequity again, like, so only people with money can travel out of state and have this done and they're still going to have it done, you know? Yes. Yep. People with privilege, you know, and then just thinking about communities that have been marginalized and the death, the loss, the devastation, the poverty, um, you know, just, yeah, it's insane. And then they'll do studies on it. And, you know, the cycle and the circle just continues. And it's like, haven't we had enough of this already? You know, but clearly not. Like, we don't learn from our mistakes. We just keep repeating them. So, you know, thank you for bringing that up um, and just unpacking because, on this in this realm of birth justice, reproductive justice, 
all of these conversations are viable conversations and necessary conversations. And so, I, you know, I pray that we will not allow ourselves just to get our news from television and stuff that we'll do our research and look at what this is and has been historically and do our due diligence so that we're speaking the language, if not speaking it, at least understanding what's going on so that we can make informed choices and not just operate to our herd immunity. I feel like, you know, we sometimes operate from a herd mentality when it comes to certain things. And we need to be able to think individually and then add that to the collective movement. But knowledge is definitely necessary for us all. Mm. Yeah, and I try to share that because I think especially for a mother whose baby dies, it's an immediate assumption that I will not support abortion, which, you know, after the loss, of course, when I lost my son, I had those thoughts because I lost a baby that I wanted. And then I think, well, how can someone else not want a baby that they get blessed with, you know, you have to work through that because that's not fair. Like you're putting what your wants and needs were onto someone else. And that's, you know, not correct because it's emotional, you know, it's a very emotional thing for a mother that lost a baby to want to save all the babies of the world, you know, and all that. But it's also like, are you even aware of the medical situation of the family? Are you aware if they can have a baby, you know, anything? So I think people need to really step back from their own personal thoughts and especially religious points of views that doesn't belong in medical care. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. So lastly, let's talk a little bit about your film because it is coming out on Hulu and I just want to make sure we give a shout out so everyone can watch. July 19th. Yes. And I, of course, already saw it at the film festival, the Sundance film Mm -hmm. festival, and you guys won an award there and it's been all over, right? You've had screenings here and there that are going really well. Yes. um, The film is doing incredibly well. As you mentioned, we were at Sundance. We've been at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. We've been at um, Hot Docs um, and or DC Docs in DC. there was an African-American film festival that's a big festival that happens in Florida. And we were at the Essence Festival just last week. Um, shoot, yeah, last week, last uh, weekend, um, over the 4th of July holiday. Um, we just did the BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music Festival. So there's been a lot of um, attention paid to this film. And I'm not saying it's great because I'm in it. I'm saying that the I love that we looked at the historical framework for what is happening with black and brown folks, that we looked at um, uh, a powerful story of what it could look like to give birth at a birthing center and have the outcome be healthy mom, healthy baby, healthy family. Um, I love that we tell the story of the powerful lives that Shimani and Amber lived and focus on the fact that they lived and they're viable people and that their children are doing well and They could be here co-creating with all of us at this time and they're not and this has to stop. And just speaking about like actions that we're taking for the future to contribute um, to this movement. And so um, that's amazing. And so on July 19th, as you mentioned, Hulu um, in in partnership with Disney Onyx um, will be launching the film. And so I'm encouraging everyone to see it. I want folks to have watch parties, but just think about it. If we do a watch party and it's one person that uses the account, that means they, they, they don't account for the 30 people who are at the watch party who also saw the film. So I'm encouraging people to not just um, purchase the film on Hulu, but to watch it in its entirety, because that's how they count that the film has been viewed and that people are um, 
you know, experiencing it and want to give feedback around it. So I'm encouraging folks to, um, to take, do that due diligence so that we can be seen and heard and we can be um, in different institutions sharing the film as a teaching component to transform the minds that you said, how can you change the minds of doctors and birthing people who've been, I mean, I'm sorry, um, reproductive um, folks in reproductive health so that they can stop doing what they've been doing to contribute to these deaths and also amplify what they've been doing to prevent death and loss because there are a lot of folks who do the right thing daily. You know, so this film being part of hospitals and educational institutions and spaces where they train folks to be midwives, it'll make a huge difference and it personalizes this story and this science um, that we're all engaged in. And this cultural experience and rite of passage that we all experience giving birth and being born and living life. So I look forward to it. Please do watch it, check it out. If you have a Hulu account, check it out. If you don't get one, check it out. The trailer is out um, and it's being shown. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. I feel like they did an incredible job. And mm -hmm. you know, anything you touch, I feel it. Like I can't come out of it without emotion, you know? So Thank I you think so you, know, you, you truly are a blessing and your daughter as well. Thank you. And, you know, sadly, I mean, you highlight the big issue is that the knowledge that you had, everything that didn't save your daughter. Uh -huh. So it is something else. And we can't just blame it on the fact that she didn't know or you didn't know to tell her this and that, you know, throughout a pregnancy, because people might want to assume things of certain people. Right? That happens a lot. Yeah. Like, what did she do? What was going on with her body? One of the things with the autopsy that the medical examiner asked about, and I'm like, test for it, because I knew it wasn't the case, that she didn't have a hereditary um, clotting disorder. So they checked her for that. I'm like, go right ahead, because I knew what happened. And they did, and it was eliminated. You know, they're looking for, it's not a smoking gun. For some, it is. Like Amber, there was a smoking gun type of situation. It was like blaring, you know, but with Shimani, it was all of the missed opportunities and moments in time, you know, after she gave birth. And, you know, we're in danger as a BIPOC birthing people of dying up to 12 months after we give birth. So one of the things that I love is that you and I are working on a project together, the Postpartum Awareness Week campaign, so that we can amplify conversation about the fourth trimester, which is, you know, postpartum. So that folks are watching, supporting, covering, following up with birthing people after they give birth and their babies to prevent these deaths from happening. Because six weeks later is not enough. Two months later is not enough. Like we really need to be paying attention. And there's a lot of things that can cause death, including postpartum depression that can lead to psychoses or perinatal mood and anxiety disorders that can lead to suicide. Um, you know, but the bottom line is that we need to pay more attention and be present. So I'm thankful to you for bringing our story and the and the film to the forefront and for doing the work and being willing to be a partner and a powerful partner at that in this movement. Yeah, and I just wanna acknowledge Omari as well because I've yes. worked with him many times and the partners in this movement are you know so strong. Ashe. Very hard to speak out, especially for men, I feel like. Yeah. But, you know, they have a powerful role, even in pregnancy. And I know that Amari is helping men to learn more about how they can support in postpartum as well. So, I mean, we can all as a community do more for those bearing the babies, not just demanding it of them, yes, but really preparing them and really supporting them and helping them have a great outcome. 
So I really thank you so much for your time and sharing all your energy as always, you know, such a blessing to be in your presence and knowing all that you're doing gives me hope because I do get tired, you know, the same thing that I'm talking about over here. And I see you and I'm like, she's still going. (laughs) I can do it. I can keep going. So yeah, we tag in and out. That's how it goes. Like I have support and covering and I'm here for you. And I know you're here for me. So just want to put that out there. We're not doing this alone. That's the important piece. Because right. yeah. I would be laying out somewhere if I was by myself. I yeah, have you a, have a great team. Awesome. Yes. A lot awesome. of wonderful women and men. Involved. Yeah, you too. You too. Yeah, we do. Yeah. I know. It's growing. And like you said earlier, the silo situation is actually not as bad because of almost uh, everyone online, you know, doing all these virtual events and everything. Exactly. So we can definitely all team up together and please let us know if anyone wants to do an event together with both of our organizations, we're happy to support others and, you know, anything that we can do together because we're all in this same fight really of improving maternity care. So. Yes. I'm sorry, before we go, I always forget to do this. Um, if, if anyone wants to follow up around the ARIA Foundation um, or the documentary Aftershock, go to aftershockdocumentary.com doc, um, um, and check us out there. You can find us on Facebook with the ARIA Foundation or my name, Shawnee Denton Gibson, or you can find, find us on IG with the ARIA Foundation and Shawnee Denton Gibson um, is also the name to find us. And you can give and support, um, you can volunteer, like whatever is in your heart to do. We need you. And so does Push for Empowered Pregnancy need more funding and support for what they're up to, too. So be generous, be present, but most of all, um, be committed so that we can stop this from happening. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I always try to run little fundraisers when I can for yes. because I'm like any dollar helps, you know, that's say, yeah. Emotional energy. We could put one more website up. We can do mm-hmm. one more events and, you know. Tanya Lu- uh, Lewis Lee, right, is yes. the director of the film. Yes. As well as Paula. Mm-hmm. Yes. How do you say Paula's last name? Iselt. Iselt. Mm-hmm. They did a fabulous job with this really, mm-hmm. you know, tender topic. It's a hard, you know, topic for anyone to talk about. And I think they covered so much, like you said, history and everything. So you do not want to miss this film. Please watch it. Thank Especially you. if you are a person who can create change and you are caring for families. Absolutely. You need to see the other side of what's going on here because... Maybe it happens and it's a really bad day for you, but this is the rest of the life of a family. Yes. Shattered, you know, so such important work. So thank you so much for that. Have a great one, everyone. And love. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I told you that episode would be one worth the time. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We know that it was a difficult topic, but we hope that it prepared you a little bit more for your birth journey. Remember to share this episode on social media so you can help others in your circle grow their knowledge and have a better birth outcome. Remember that all the posts that we share and our episodes are not meant to be medical advice. We are simply trying to help you and inform you as you continue your pregnancy. But always remember that you should consult your provider if you have any questions or concerns. They're there to help you and they are available to you 24-7 even if you have to go into the hospital at ER. Again, follow us on social media to continue up to date with our next episodes and our posts. And feel free to connect with us in the DMs. If you have any questions, we would be happy to be there for you. You are not alone. This is your community. And we hope that you will continue to watch our future and past episodes to continue to add to your knowledge as we interview birth workers, 
providers, researchers, and even people who have experienced different births so that when you get to your birth, you'll be a little bit more informed and prepared for whatever comes your way. Goodbye for now.